But I think the world of NHS data analysis and traditional epidemiology has been really slow to catch on with modern, open, shared methods. So in quality improvement, measurement is seen as being this key driver of change. How can you know how well you're doing if you don't actually measure it? So when something changes in the NHS, say a new guideline comes in, how quickly can we tell whether that's filtering down into the front line? Well, a new paper published on bmj.com is a sort of proof of concept of a new way of doing that. And I'm joined by one of the authors, Ben Goldacre, from the Data Lab, which is part of the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford. Ben, thanks for coming on to the podcast again to talk to us. Hey, hi. So, as I said, you know, measurement's this key part of behaviour change. And then we have lots of ways of doing that already. Uh, why was it that you wanted to create this new one what's different about what you've done so what we've added with this work is a set of tools that allow people to look at change over time much more powerfully than before so in the past as you say there's been a lot of work on variation in care but it's cross-sectional so it takes a static picture you can say okay we think that overall people should be using this statin rather than that statin. So let's look across the country at each practice, each CCG, maybe each doctor, and see out of all the prescriptions given, what proportion are for what we have identified as the best one. Now, there's a problem with that kind of static variation in care work, which is that it, it can miss a lot of really important signals in the data. In particular, if it finds that you're currently doing the right thing, it might miss the fact that you only changed to do the right thing several years later than your colleagues across the country. So what we've done with this new set of tools is to create an easy way for researchers to take longitudinal time series data and identify in there, not just the time when an individual practice or CCG changes its behavior, but also to see how quickly they changed their behavior, as in how well coordinated that change was. Did they change slowly and gradually, or did they change with a sudden sharp shock? Mm. Now, this allows us to look at something which has been examined in, in medical research for um, almost a century now, which is the diffusion of innovation. How quickly do people take up new ideas? And if you look at the social science work that's covered in our first three references, um, going back to the 1940s and 50s, some of the earliest stuff on diffusion of innovation was actually done in healthcare. It was work like when did each doctor in this area first start using antibiotics, for example. But the challenge has been, right up until work conducted in the last couple of years, that when people were looking at that diffusion of new ideas in medicine, they were coding all of the data by hand or using very crude metrics. So, for example, people would do papers where they would say, on what date did each practice in this region um, first use a particular new treatment? What we've been able to do by, by adapting this data science method from outside of medicine 
is take long-term time series data and allow people to examine in a much more sophisticated way when did the generality of clinical practice change to reflect the new norm or the new best practice. Mm, and that generality is important because um, when you've done this, you've, you, you're using two formulary changes, um, the, the sudden availability of two generics. And what you've not done in this is sort of go through and check the appropriateness um, of a of a, a, a prescription, um, but what you have done is is just look at the the sort of overall pattern of how that uh, change to the generic has sort of filtered through. Yeah, and that's really important. So um, this is a paper really of two halves. Firstly, it's can we produce this interesting new method and share all of the tools with the wider community so that they can use that method themselves? And then secondly, we have applied it to two interesting questions. Um, so the first one is change in prescribing behavior around desogestrel, which is one of the most commonly prescribed oral contraceptives. And a few years ago, Cerazet, the branded form of desogestrel, ceased to be the thing that you would be most likely to prescribe because generic desogestrel became available. So across the whole country, you saw a very substantial switch away from branded Cerazet and towards generic desogestrel. But what was interesting was that anecdotally, we saw looking at the data that some practices changed early, some CCGs changed early and in a very coordinated way towards cheaper desogestrel. Some CCGs changed in a very coordinated, very sudden way. They went from 70% branded down to 30% branded in just the space of a couple of months. But they made that sudden coordinated change two years later than some of the other CCGs that had made that change. So it was clear to us that there was enormous variation in the timing of implementation of that warranted change, but there was also substantial variation in how well coordinated that change was. It, one of the interesting things, just taking a step back, is that um, you know we, we tell a story about medicine to the general public, to policymakers, and to each other, that medicine is a very data-driven profession. So we identify uncertainties, we resolve them with clinical trials, we put all the results of that evidence together in reviews or guidelines, then we disseminate that information and we implement it in clinical practice. The reality of clinical medicine is obviously much messier than that. There are delays and imperfections at every stage in that process. And what this allows us to do is to produce really robust information on the characteristics of the delays of that um, implementation. So we can see who's going early, who's going late. We can see that there are some areas where change is very gradual, almost reflecting a kind of um, the oral tradition of medicine, a kind of gradual percolating through of new treatment guidelines. Whereas in other areas, you can see a sudden coordinated change which strongly suggests that there is serious coordinated activity by, for example, a medicines optimization team in, uh, of pharmacists in a CCG going out there and saying, come on, chop, chop, everyone, we've got a change from Cerozet to desogestrel. So Cerozet to desogestrel is one particular use case we looked at. The other one was the shift in clinical practice from trimethoprim being the standard first line treatment for uncomplicated urinary tract infection in primary care 
towards nitroferantoin being the preferred treatment. And again, we looked at um, the variation in when people implemented that change and also the variation in how sudden, how coordinated the implementation of that change was. Now, for both of these changes in clinical practice, you're right, we didn't go in and do a full case notes review of each individual prescription that was issued to check whether it was perfectly appropriate for each individual patient. But that's because we were looking at literally all prescribing across the entire population of England. Every single prescription issued by every single practice in 8,000 uh, practices across the NHS. And we know that in a certain small number of cases, actually trimethoprim will be more appropriate than nitroferantone. We know that in a certain small number of cases that Cerazet will be more appropriate than desogestrel. But overall, because these are such high volume prescribing behaviours, we know that across each individual practice, you would expect to see a very substantial shift away from the old norm towards the new norm. So you can use the full data set to look at how quickly that change was implemented without doing a full review of each individual patient's case. Mm. Which uh, obviously becomes very handy then if you do want to look at change uh, at the scale of the NHS as opposed to the practice. Now, well, which, is, which is, by the way, incredibly important because, you know, the, the evidence in medicine is constantly changing. There are constantly new safety alerts. There are constantly new price shocks. And we want the system to respond in as rapid and as coordinated a way as possible to those changes if we're going to optimise care for patients. Hmm. So when I was reading this, there were a few things in there that um, I hadn't heard of before, particularly the way in which you actually worked out if there was this sort of behaviour change um, at a practice level. And you've got this thing called a trend indicator saturation. What does that mean? How does that work? So let's just step back a moment here. Um, this paper, much like all of the work that we do in the data lab at Oxford, was a, a really truly multidisciplinary piece of work. We're a team of clinicians, pharmacists, as well as doctors, but also pure researchers and also crucially, full stack commercial grade software engineers. So we make openprescribing.net, which is an open platform that anyone can use to look at their prescribing behavior and see um, what is being prescribed in each individual practice across the country. So this paper came about because when we were looking at the data, anecdotally we could see there was huge variation in when people were responding to um, warranted change over time. Uh, we came across Felix Prettis, the god of indicator saturation and co-author on this paper. We were introduced by Max Rosa, who's a local economist who runs a very popular blog called Our World in Data. And we realised that Felix's libraries for detecting change in time series data presented a huge opportunity. So his libraries, which he's made openly available through R, which is the open source stats analysis package, were initially developed for looking at climate data over time. And what they essentially do is look at very noisy longitudinal time series data and where there are trends, where there are changes over time in the data, it automatically identifies the points in time at which there has been a step change in people's behavior. So 
with 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 um, simpler techniques like interrupted time series analysis, you come in um, from the outside with a preset hypothesis. You say, I think at this particular point in time, there should have been a change in behavior. Dear computer, please tell me what is the change in the time trend of this particular behavior that I'm looking at? And also, was there a step change at this particular moment in time? What indicator saturation does is it looks at the time series data and it tells you where it thinks the changes have occurred. It tells you the time point at which the change occurred. And it also can then tell you the slope of the um, of the change over time. Now, if people want to read about that in eye-watering detail, um, then if you Google uh, indicator saturation, I'm sure the first things that will come up will be Felix Pretis's, uh papers. Mm. But so essentially you're saying this, this is creating a sort of model that takes the pre, like doesn't presuppose any of these changes. It's, it's just looking at, as you say, a, a, a tipping point. Um, and then you've been able to sort of use that to to look at the data and see where the tipping points were in all of the different practices or areas or or whatever you're uh, uh, were looking at at that point. That's exactly right, and that's really crucially important to be able to automate that process. So we spend a lot of time in the open prescribing team looking at prescribing behaviours over time uh, in the NHS. And we would often see that, um, you know, we go, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, in some places they implemented the uh, the Public Health England guidance on switching to nitrofurantoin really early. In some places they implemented it really late. And you look at these time series data and you think, well, God, if I had all the time in the world, then I could manually go through 8,000 GP practices in the country and I could mark on each time series graph with a pencil the time at which I thought the prescribing behavior changed and also the time uh, that it took for that change to be fully implemented. Now, that's how diffusion of innovation research has been done in the past. And that's why it's been done on very, very tiny numbers of healthcare organizations. What we wanted was to be able to develop a code base a set of um, tools that could identify the, the, the time point and the degree of coordination of the change automatically. Because then when you can do it at scale, you can start to do lots of really interesting work. So what we've shown in this paper is just the very beginning of that. We've shown, first of all, that when you automatically detect the, um, the date and the degree of coordination of behavior change, you can produce descriptive statistics. So for example, in the paper, we have histograms showing over time for each of these two behavior changes, switching from serozet to desigestrel and switching from trimethoprim to nitrofurantoin, over time, how many practices change their behavior in each given month? And so when you look at those histograms, you can see just very simply, and it's very interesting, you can see um, the variation in how swiftly across the country practices are responding to that warranted change in behavior. You can also then do descriptive stats like the interquartile range. And that's also really important because that shows you the phenomenal variation. So remember, this is interquartile range, not interdecile range. Um, but the, the, the range of time delay before a change is implemented for switching from serozet to desigestrel, 
the, the median is eight months, but the interquartile range is from two to 14 months. So there's an enormous variation in when people implemented that warranted mm. change in clinical practice. And for nitroferantoin from trimethoprim, the range is even greater. So the range is from five months to 29 months. We also saw enormous variation across the country in how coordinated that change was. So for the change from serozet to desogestrel, the interquartile range went from a 2% absolute reduction in serozet prescribing per month down to a 28% absolute reduction in serozet prescribing per month. Now, if you think about that in kind of practical real world terms, um, serozet, an oral contraceptive pill, it's likely to be handed out in three month prescriptions, maybe even six month prescriptions, depending on how generous the GP is being about not inconveniencing people with regular pickups. So if you assume a three month repeat prescription cycle, somebody who's doing a 28% absolute reduction per month, that probably means that they have just absolutely cleared out over a three month period, everybody on a repeat prescription cycle in a really coordinated way. And so you can see that there's huge variation between practices in how, um, in how coordinated and determined they were to implement that change. So when you've collected, when you've produced a tool that can, that can extract from this incredibly huge noisy data set of all prescribing in the whole country, you can extract those kinds of signals, then you can do something important and interesting with it next. And actually, some of the most interesting stuff with this tool, I think, is around what we're now able to do with um, with the data next, but also the fact that we've shared the tool so that other people can use it to do their own interesting work. Mm. And that next, as you say, is the, the interesting bit. Um, you mentioned there a few times sort of automation. Are you at a point with this where someone at a, I don't know, CCG level, or even at their own practice level, could take this and actually start to, you know, look at how well that, you know, they're doing in their sort of behavior change compared to other people? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first up, bear in mind that if any individual practice wants to look at their own prescribing behavior, then they can go to openprescribing.net and it's freely and openly available to all. So they can look at any of our standard prescribing measures, but they can also look at their, um, they can do their own bespoke um, queries on the data. Um, but we have also gone out of our way to make this code library as easy to use as possible for anybody who's interested. So um, we've shared, and there's a reference in the paper, um, we've shared not only Felix's original change detection code, which is in R, but we've also built something called a wrapper around that R package that runs in Python, which is the programming language that we use and that we think more analysts in the NHS should use because it allows you to share your methods openly with others and also to reuse it to avoid unnecessary duplication. And we've shared a Python library that makes it really very, very straightforward for people to do whatever work they want to on the data. Now, that's partly because we want to see this happen with this particular code library. But that's also, if you like, a kind of political or cultural act. Um, I am increasingly frustrated by um, 
by really the failure of the academic community to engage with modern, open, collaborative software development methods. We see those methods used really well in some quarters, in particular, for example, in the world of uh, genetics, molecular genetics, and to an extent, genetic epidemiology. But I think the world of NHS data analysis and traditional epidemiology has been really slow to catch on with modern, open, shared methods. And that's something that we're really advocating for with the open prescribing work and with everything that we do in the data lab. So we've shared our whole code base across all of the work that we do openly. And we've done it here for this um, library because we would like other people to use this code. And because we don't want to rent seek against our activity, we would like other people to use it freely and do interesting things with it. And we look forward to seeing what other stuff they can do. You talked about how you have this multidisciplinary team. And I think the insight that you gave there about the fact that um, people might have a, a three-month prescription uh, of a contraceptive, you know, applying that kind of clinical understanding onto the uh, the data that you saw um, helped you understand why there might have been a lag in, in some places and, and really give you insight there. Uh, and I suppose that that's really important if anyone's taking this away and trying to implement it themselves, that, that they understand the context in which this data is generated. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's incredibly important. Um, and with a separate hat on, um, I'm chair of the Health Tech Advisory Board for the NHS, reporting directly to Matt Hancock, who's Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. And as part of that, I've been doing a lot of work on um, trying to uh, change the way that data analysis is done in the NHS to move away from an era of people doing closed analyses behind closed doors, often using point and click tools like Excel and moving towards the adoption of more open, modern, collaborative methods, like, for example, sharing your code on GitHub, doing things using reproducible methods, using Python, and in particular, something called Jupyter Notebooks, where you can share your code and the outputs of your code and your data all together in one package. And um, one thing I've been really struck by is how how many incredibly talented analysts there are in the NHS, but how very little pooling of knowledge there is, first of all. There's almost no commons of knowledge around practical data analysis for the NHS. There's, there's no textbook, there's almost no literature, and it's really, it's, it's a real... Um, it's a real barrier to innovation and to better work. It also creates a lot of needless duplication. But the great thing about it is it means that there is an absolute deluge of fantastic analytic insights just waiting to be splurged out as soon as we can start getting people to use these kinds of uh, modern open methods. But it only happens when you have people collaborating together in, in multidisciplinary teams, as you say. Um, because the, although there's an, a lot of fantastic work, the dark side of what I've seen, if that doesn't sound too melodramatic, <laughs> but the dark side of what I've seen is um, just very occasionally, um, you know, it's the line from the military about lions led by donkeys. You do sometimes see, um, maybe that's unfair, but you sometimes see uh, it, uh, analysts who've come in from other sectors with outstanding technical skills around pure data analytics, 
but who are not being tasked with healthcare questions in a very in in the most efficient ways because they don't have managers who understand a little bit about data analysis and a little bit around um, healthcare and epidemiology and also the practicalities of how um, of how healthcare is implemented. I think these are incredibly difficult challenges to meet because you know it takes a lifetime to understand how the NHS works it takes a lifetime to become an adequate clinician and it takes a lifetime to become an adequate data analyst and so if you want to produce insights that require a little bit of each of those three camps that's a really big ask and you only get that by having truly mixed teams pooling their their knowledge in structured ways and also you only get that if you have people um sharing their outputs and their working methods in structured ways um so i hope that none of what i said just then sounds mean in any way I, it's it's meant to be optimistic because i think um you know there's a huge number of problems out there sitting around waiting to be fixed and i think that there are there are some really destructive traditions and silos in the way that we work on these problems over time and it's it's not a it's not a huge piece of work to to push through the boundaries between those silos what you've been looking at here is is all about warranted change so you know things that that we want but uh, equally i suppose you could look at this to see how susceptible um someone or like at a practice level or, or whatever is at at pharma advertising or, or something like this as well if you could have a, a time point where which a big advertising campaign happened yeah sure um i mean i think that's just one example of uh, a generality which is that you can use this code base potentially to evaluate the impact of any given behavior change intervention um so pharma marketing is one part of that um, and you could always evaluate pharma marketing um, in cross-sectional data, but you know this allows you to do it in a, a new and interesting and different way. Um, but you can also do it for evaluating the impact of um, local service changes, for example. Um, so I think there's I think there's huge potential to use this um, as an outcome measure, uh, or at least an additional window onto um, behavior change. And I think it's worth coming back to um, just the notion again of, of diffusion of innovation. Um, I'm, I'm often really troubled by the extent to which um, a lot of our investment, especially around kind of health data science, to me feels a little um, misplaced because there's a lot of emphasis on creating things that are shiny and, and used, uh, shiny and new, and much less work on ensuring that everybody across the whole country is doing the right thing. Now, that's obviously a really big and difficult multidisciplinary nut to crack. And it's something that a lot of people have been knocking their heads up against for a long, long time. Um, but it's also a field that hasn't really had um, quite as much input, I think, from the more kind of technical end of, of data science. It's tended to be um, more managerially oriented work which i think is really important as well it's just that i think that you need a number of different heads on the problem of getting change implemented in the healthcare service and the, you know the last thing to add uh, of course above all is that um 
you know, we don't brandish our audit and feedback tools as a stick to beat clinicians with. And I think that's why open prescribing as a service has been successful. It's got 140,000 unique users a year, 15,000 unique users a month. We've got um, a paper published in Jamia showing a positive change in clinical practice in organizations where it starts to be used. Um, and it's been successful in part because it's a good service, it's competently produced, but also in part because I think we're cautious about how we present the data back to clinicians, to the public and to policymakers. When you find that somebody is slow to adopt a warranted change, when you find that somebody is an outlier for a particular desirable prescribing behaviour, that's not proof positive that they are somehow flawed individuals. Um, it's first of all the beginning of a conversation and there may be a very good reason why they are an outlier. But also secondly, it's important to reflect that um, you know, you can't get change in clinical practice just by wishing it or by somehow obliging people to go out and find out what, what changes they're supposed to do and then implement them. You need as a community, as a health service, as an academic community to do the hard work to make it easy for clinicians to change. And I think we've been incredibly bad at engaging in targeted dissemination of uh, information to clinicians, getting the right information to the right clinician at the right time. Um, and I think there's a huge amount of work just sitting there waiting to be done. Um, and I really, really hope that over time, some of the um, some of the academic research resource in um, around health data can perhaps be diverted away from the sort of 1990s model of observational epidemiology and logistic regressions of factors associated with X, Y, and Z, and more towards the kind of work that we're doing in the data lab in Oxford, which is about producing um, kind of more humble, practical tools from data for clinicians to use themselves to get their own insights into data and how it can be used to improve patient care. Um, because that may not necessarily get the biggest glamorous papers in the kind of traditional journals, but it is probably where the biggest, um, where the biggest prizes lie in terms of improving care for patients. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, ben, thank you very much for that. Hey, thank you. Cheers. So that was Ben Goldacre talking about variation in responsiveness to warranted behaviour change amongst NHS clinicians. And that article is now available on bmj.com. As always, I'll put the link in the podcast text for you. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed it and you want to have more, then go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, anywhere that you usually get your podcasts from. There you can subscribe so you don't miss out on our next one. Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>